You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Thank you all very much. The members of Congress and distinguished guests, my fellow Americans, we gather here today to right a grave wrong. More than 40 years ago, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry living in the United States were forcibly removed from their homes and placed in makeshift internment camps. This action was taken without trial, without jury. It was based solely on race, for these 120,000 were Americans of Japanese descent. Yes, the nation was then at war, struggling for its survival, and it's not for us today to pass judgment upon those who may have made mistakes while engaged in that great struggle. Yet we must recognize that the internment of Japanese Americans was just that, a mistake. For throughout the war, Japanese Americans in the tens of thousands remained utterly loyal to the United States. Indeed, scores of Japanese Americans volunteered for our armed forces, many stepping forward in the internment camps themselves. The 442nd Regimental Combat Team, made up entirely of Japanese Americans, served with immense distinction to defend this nation, their nation. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of American History 2. Um, and since this is our last episode of 2017, I just want to take this chance to start the show to say thank you to everyone who has listened to any of the episodes this year, myself and Malcolm. Greatly appreciate it. We're so grateful that we've actually come up with a new podcast um, and you should be looking out for that in your feeds at the beginning of 2018, but we'll reveal more later. But Malcolm, since I've mentioned you without introducing you, I feel like I should introduce you now. Hello, Malcolm Craig. Oh, hello. And uh, yes, delighted to have got to the end of another year uh, of podcasting. Also like to say thanks to all our guests uh, who've been on, who've uh, talked so eloquently and such and at great length about their research projects and areas of interest and everything. So that's been absolutely fantastic uh, to hear about such a diverse range of research uh, into American history and transnational history and all these other things that we talk about and looking forward to another year of it uh, next year. So... Today, uh, when we think about race and racism uh, in America, uh, there's often a focus on African Americans and their experiences, uh, and that's an area of kind of great, you know, of great interest and obvious uh, concern in contemporary America. But there's also other groups that have been discriminated against by American politics, by American society, and that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at uh, Asian Americans uh, and their experiences uh, of and in the United States. And in order to do this, this is our first podcast where we have two guests, so we're going to see how this works. Uh, we're going to have four of us uh, talking today. Uh, so we've got uh, University of Ex- Exeter's Rachel Pistol and the University of Edinburgh's Tim Cooper uh, joining us today. So welcome to both of you. And as usual, uh, we'll start with a kind of very brief introduction to your research. So Rachel, if I could turn to you first. Ah, oh, thanks. Um, so my research, I really I've been looking at a comparison of in Second World War internment in the UK and the USA. So what I've done is I've looked at um, immigration history in both countries sort of in the century preceding the Second World War um, and then actually the experiences of the people who were interned and uh, what happens afterwards, how the release process worked and the aftermath. And then uh, sort of my main focus at the moment is looking at actually how has internment been remembered and commemorated um, in both countries. Thank you. And Tim, what, what is it you look at in particular? Um, so my PhD, which I completed um, earlier on this year, looked at British-American relations in the sort of early 20th century um, and specifically looking at interaction between Britain and the United States over Japan and China. So that included 
um, the influence of sort of ideas of yellow peril um, and also ideas of, sort of Anglo-Saxon uh, unity on diplomatic relations between the two powers. Um, and as part of that, I looked at um, Japanese immigration specifically. So today we're going to be discussing the experiences of Asian Americans and, and Asians in America. But as, as specialised in these fields, is Asian really a term we should be using? I mean, given the diversity of, you know, it's, Asia is a vast continent. Is it useful to use it in this way? As, you know, many people at the time essentialised all Asians, regardless of where they came from, into this kind of single mass? That's quite an interesting um, sort of way to look at it, because actually... There were differentiations, uh, but also when you look at some of the immigration acts uh, in the early 20th century, such as um, one that was created in 1917 that created the Asiatic Bard Zone, um, you have sort of everyone in Asia sort of lumped together. And yet, as I'm sure Tim will tell you, um, you had some very specific um, legislation that was um, designed for Chinese and, and Japanese. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that um, when Asians used in this way, it, it, it has a kind of double meaning that it, it, it refers to all of Asia, but at the same time um, really is slightly limited, um, mostly to sort of East Asia, Southeast Asia, um, sometimes including um, South Asian countries like India. So um, the use of Asian, I guess, yeah, has some specific connotations. Um, and there is a there is an extent to which... Um, particularly in the sort of late 19th, early 20th century, there's a lumping together of um, these different nations um, into one kind of umbrella term. So you'd often hear um, terms like Oriental or the sort of um, racial category of Mongolian, which is obviously very problematic, but it's, it reflects this sort of, um, yeah, essentializing um, of all these different um, nations. I mean, if we, so if there was this kind of idea of Asians, I mean, was there, was there a way that the American, was there stereotypes, you know, the sort of American public mind thought about them? I mean, I remember being told, you know, particularly sort of the first half of the 20th century that as an undergraduate, yeah, sorry, an undergraduate, I remember being taught that Americans sort of viewed the Japanese as hardworking and, in a way, they were to be respected and feared slightly, um, whereas the Chinese were often viewed as lazy but generally pliable people. I mean, were these stereotypes you have come across? Yeah, I think there's a really interesting kind of interrelation between um, stereotypes and the sort of US view of the Japanese and, and view of the Chinese. Um, and I think, yeah, it, it would roughly um, come into that kind of um, split that you, you've raised there. I think one of the things that I found really interesting looking at this is the um, change over time in the views of um, Japan and China. So in the sort of second half of the 19th century, Japan is viewed in that really positive sort of way um, by most Americans, um, sort of seen as a paragon of kind of modernization. Some Americans see Japan as a sort of... Um, bit of a protege, um, given the, the American role in, in opening up Japan in the 1850s. Um, so there's a, a much more positive view in contrast with um, the American view of China, which is that it's, it's stagnant, it's um, sort of not really embracing uh, modernization, and, and they have lots of negative views about Chinese characteristics. Um, this does begin to change in the um, first decade of the 20th century. So with the, the Russo-Japanese War, um, Japanese success in that is really admired, is really respected. Um, but also there's a, an element of fear um, that comes into U.S. dealings with Japan at this point, um, particularly as Japan becomes more assertive in, in mainland Asia, um, in Korea, for example, at this point. Views in the U.S. start to turn against Japan and there's much more... Um, kind of a, a sense of fear and concern about what Japan's capable of. Yeah. And then in turn, that leads to a much more sympathetic view of China. Yeah, just to quickly comment, um, you, since you mentioned the Russo-Japanese war, I mean, why does, I mean, I don't know if this is an area you're an expertise on, but why does uh, Theodore Roosevelt involve himself 
negotiating an end to that war? Because is it not a case that the Japanese almost feel a sense of resentment in the decades later that, that Roosevelt almost screwed them over in a sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's, there's certainly um, an aspect of that. There are um, protests in Japan after the signing of the um, Treaty of Portsmouth, which um, Roosevelt uh, sort of mediated. Um, there is a sort of growing sense during the war um, that Japan is essentially doing too well. So the US had been really supportive of Japan initially and Roosevelt um, personally, because geopolitically it was kind of beneficial for the Russians to be knocked back in Asia. But Japan seemed to be so sort of efficient and so um, was so easily defeating the Russians that it became a real source of concern. So part of the reason for Roosevelt's intervention was to try and reach a peace settlement, which was a bit of balance. He had a, a famous comment um where he sort of said, if the, if there isn't some kind of balance in this, if there isn't essentially both sides exhausted, then we'll be faced with either a yellow peril or a Slav peril. So um, there's certainly an element of trying to um, avoid to the two kind of quick rise of Japan. And I mean, Rachel, can we you know, turn to you uh, back for a moment and consider that question that we, we initially posed about the kind of differences in the, you know, the official mind and the public mind about kind of, you know, Asians at the start of the 20th century. You know, is there anything you particularly you know have to say about that? Well, I think what's quite interesting is if we look at sort of um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's views on the Japanese, uh, because he sort of didn't share it. He was the president who ended up interning um, Japanese and Japanese-Americans. But certainly at the beginning of the 20th century, he didn't really share the popular racist views of Asians as innately menacing or uncivilised. And he had a lot of friendships with Japanese and was very interested in Japanese culture. Um, But then you start to see during the first decade of the 20th century um, uh, where you start to see Japan as a potential military threat. And and as... uh, uh, Franklin's career progressed he began to be more wary of the Japanese and so he started to say well actually uh, the Japanese are against racial mixing and so therefore it's okay for the Americans to be against this and you start to see this sort of justification um, of certain discriminatory um, policies because there's also still this general belief that those of Japanese ancestry are still Japanese regardless of where they're born and therefore they are not um, eligible for equal citizenship or rights. And I mean, I think that's a topic we'll definitely uh, return to in a, in a few moments' time and discussing, you know, internment and the outbreak of World, World War Two. But this kind of sense of, you know, threat and the concerns about kind of the menacing nature uh, of, you know, Asian societies, this all gets tied up in what's called the, the yellow peril, which, Tim, you've ma- mentioned already in your, your introduction. So what do we mean? when we talk about yellow peril what what does that all mean i think it's a it's actually a really broad and kind of flexible concept there are lots of different um things tied up in this idea of yellow peril um one thing i guess that a lot of people would associate with the concept of yellow peril is the idea of the sort of um oriental supervillain so fu manchu i suppose is the is the kind of prime example of this um who i think the the author of those stories described him as sort of the yellow peril incarnate in one man. Um, this idea of sort of cunning and cruelty and essentially a desire to, to overthrow white domination and replace it with this sort of vague yellow race domination. Um, so that's, that's the kind of, I guess, the sensationalized aspect of the yellow peril. And you, you see that a lot in the sort of late, 19th century, early 20th century, there's a whole genre of um, literature around kind of Asian invasion stories um, where sort of the, the vast hordes of um, China will pour out and sort of take over um, uh, end Western domination of the world and that sort of thing. Um, so that's one aspect of it. But I think also um, there are aspects of it that are much more tied to sort of genuine concerns that people had at the time um so around immigration there were ideas that um simply by the sheer number of people um in china 
Chinese immigration posed a threat of sort of peaceful invasion that if enough um, Chinese immigrants came to a particular place. So, uh, I mean, the West Coast of the US is one example, but there were similar fears in Australia, for example, as well, um, that they, they would just essentially sort of colonize the land. Um, and it, it kind of tied into that as well is that there's an aspect of economic competition in the yellow peril that um, China and Japan just represent this sort of um, force for um, kind of replacing the West again in terms of economic dominance. Um, and so as much as the yellow peril is tied to a lot of these really negative stereotypes of, um, as I say, sort of cruelty of untrustworthiness and this sort of thing. There are also within kind of yellow peril ideas, some positive stereotypes as well, or, or qualities that we would, would have been seen as positive in Westerners, but in, um, Asians were seen as a threat. So being sort of industrious, being resilient, uh, being a kind of, for the Japanese anyway, being a sort of martial race, these kind of, um, ostensibly sort of positive qualities were seen in the context of a kind of threat in the yellow peril. Excellent. Uh, so we'll turn to kind of, you know, to Rachel in a moment to talk about kind of Japanese, uh, immigration. But in, in the second half of the 19th century, successive US governments, you know, are starting to pass various laws restricting immigration. And, you know, China becomes a, seems to become a focus for this. I mean, Tim, just could you give us like, you know, a minute? On, on what these kind of immigration laws are and why they're put in place. And you've talked about the economic aspects of all of this kind of thing, but just, you know, very briefly, what are these laws? Uh, well, so the big piece of legislation that, um, is really kind of landmark, I suppose, in, in US immigration law. And it's, it's unique because it singles out one nation to exclude is the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Um, and this is a response to the, the kind of fears of economic competition that I mentioned and, ideas of um, kind of unfair competition posed by Chinese laborers in the US and particularly on the West Coast. And so this law is put in place, um, essentially banning all Chinese labor immigration. There are exceptions for students and um, kind of visiting dignitaries and that sort of thing, but it essentially bars any um, Chinese laborers from coming to the United States. Um, and it's sort of extended um, and made permanent in 1902. Um, and at the same time, you also have um, a run of Supreme Court rulings that uphold the Chinese Exclusion Act um, and set down this sort of principle that um, excluding foreigners for whatever reason. So even as is the case with the Chinese, it's fairly um, clearly on the basis of uh, these racial objections um, that, yeah, excluding um, people is a sort of sovereign right of the nation. Um, and so there can't really be any limits placed on who the government can choose to exclude. Um, and non-citizens don't have the kind of constitutional protections to appeal against that. So these cases um, are really important alongside this this major piece of legislation um, in the Chinese Exclusion Act. Okay. And, and Rachel, I mean, as we, as we move further into the 20th century, I mean, do these immigration restrictions begin to apply to Japanese immigrants as well? I mean, I, I know from, uh, from teaching vaguely of a gentleman's agreement, which, you know, didn't sound very gentlemanly. Um, so I mean, what, what's kind of going on with the approach to Japanese? Yeah, that's quite right. It is a bit of a misnomer. Um, you start to see that as the, uh, Chinese Exclusion Act that, uh, has quite a strong effect on reducing the number of Chinese who are coming into the States, you start to see the attention shift to the Japanese. And this is why in the early years of the 20th century, you then have the gentleman's agreement. Um, so you find that you've got sort of two things happening. You've got uh, very much anti-Japanese sentiment happening on the West Coast. So California, for example, uh, tried in 1906 to remove Japanese from white schools. Um, and, you know, this is particularly, this particularly angered the Japanese government as only a few months before the Japanese Red Cross has actually contributed a large amount of money to help the fire victims of the San Francisco earthquake. And so what you find is this agreement comes about where um, the US pressures Japan not to allow sort of any more laborers um, to come across to the United States. And, and so rather than the restriction when people arrive 
at the United States. What they're trying to do is is putting the onus onto the Japanese government to not issue passports to people who they don't want to travel. And oh. sorry, oh, sorry, continue. No, no, I was just going to say, and, and interestingly enough, um, I mean, they do allow wives, children, and parents of people who are already living. Um, in America to come and travel to be with their family. Uh, but we do see that between 1909 and 1913, um, you've got um, sort of 5,500 more Japanese departed the US than entered before the Gentlemen's Agreement. So in that sense, it sort of was successful for what America was trying to achieve. All right, okay. And I mean, for... for- I mean, for those Japanese migrants who were in the United States and, you know, the wives and children that come over and everything, you know, what is life like for them? Are they integrated into communities? Are they very much living in separate areas? You know, we often think of, and I mean, obviously this doesn't really apply to Japanese, but we often think of Chinatown areas in American cities. I mean, are are they integrated or are they separated? Well, it very much depends on sort of where they are on the West Coast. Uh, you do find that as you come into the 1930s, there are quite a lot of stories of um, children who were quite integrated um, and lived in mixed neighbourhoods. But then you also have, depending on the industry and, and whereabouts they were, you also have a lot of cases where actually, you know, you, you do have Japan towns and a lot of white Americans are not particularly keen on trading with the Japanese. So you find that the majority of those who are in the States are working either in farming or they're in fishing or they're providing services to other Japanese. And um, you find that most Japanese shops are frequented by Japanese. Um, and they're not allowed to own property. Um, so that seriously curtails the opportunities that they have. They can't have citizenship and they can't own anything. That does sound a touch difficult. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit challenging. So you find that actually as they start to have children, um, because their children are actually American citizens, uh, therefore the children can officially own property. So when you see property owners it's generally because the property or the land is actually in the name of their ch- children all right so and in so 1907 this kind of there we've talked about how kind of there's you know immigration to the you know the west coast of the united states and everything and in 1907 there's something that affects both the united states and canada and it's the pacific coast race riots of 1907 uh, so would anyone like to you know talk about them briefly and and when, why are they important? So I mean the the riots in 1907 are interesting. They come out of um, what Rachel has just mentioned this um, crisis in in San Francisco over school segregation, um, and that is sort of partially resolved by the Gentlemen's Agreement, but it leaves a lot of anger in San Francisco, a lot of resentment towards the Japanese. Um, and that comes out during 1907 in a, in a sort of series of um, violence against Japanese business uh, businesses, against Japanese um, residents in San Francisco. Um, it's that's followed up by um, a riot against um, Indian uh, immigrants in Bellingham in Washington. So there's a, a mob formed to try and uh, drive um, Indian immigrants out of that town. And then shortly after that, um, there is a, a larger riot in Vancouver, British Columbia, um, which comes out of uh, a parade in favour of Asian exclusion, um, which essentially turns nasty and um, there's violence against the Chinese and Japanese parts of the city. Um, and these so this sort of series of riots is, is particularly interesting because it's often used to sort of highlight the transatlantic nature of Asian sort of exclusion um, ideology. So this this idea of um, restricting Asian immigration crosses borders. So as well as um, American sort of Asian exclusion activists who went up to Vancouver and, and were part of sort of fermenting this riot, there are also visiting speakers to that event from Australia and New Zealand who were, had a similar sort of agenda of um, trying to encourage the government to to put in place uh, Asian exclusion legislation. So it's an interesting sort of um, example of where these um, these ideas kind of cross borders and, and 
have this sort of more than a, kind of a beyond a national influence. I think, I mean, this is, I mean, especially, you know, Rachel, when we're considering uh, the work that you've done, especially your, your recent book, uh, which I'm sure you'll, you know, talk from. Uh, December 7th, 1941, the Imperial Japanese Navy attacks the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor uh, on Hawaii. And this, you know, is one of the fundamental things, bringing America right into the fighting in World War II. I mean, I always find it's interesting though, that Pearl Harbor is sometimes seen as this kind of, this singular moment, but it was part of this much wider blitzkrieg. You know, British colonial possessions like Malaya and Singapore and Hong Kong were attacked in the same day, and areas of like US power, like the Philippines and other Pacific islands like Wake and Guam, are all attacked at the same time. It's part of a much wider attack. But in terms of what it does for the United States, Rachel, I mean, is there an immediate reaction? in the aftermath of Pearl Harbor against Japanese Americans from other citizens and from the American government? Well, so I think you can never underestimate how much of a shock to America uh, Pearl Harbor was. And just this, uh, you know, as, as, as Roosevelt said, it's a day of infamy. Um, and and they never could believe that such a thing could happen. You know, there's, there's that... Um, belief that in superiority so therefore how could they possibly be actually attacked on their own land and so that shock uh, seemed to galvanize a few responses uh, initially what they tried to do is they they wanted to round up all of those who they considered to be uh, key members in the Japanese community however the FBI didn't really have particularly fantastic files that told them that so they had to guess and say so they went for heads of language schools heads of churches uh, heads of any type of organization and um, you know that that was japanese basically they considered to be a threat and so you found that a lot of a lot of men were rounded up uh, immediately and sent to department of justice camps out of interest, the one thing that's always sort of interested me about the Japanese internment, at least, at least around the edges, is, is the, from what I understand, the US only interns mainland Japanese, uh, or former Japanese Americans or Japanese citizens, but it doesn't intern Hawaiian Japanese, is that correct? And, and if so, why do they only target the mainland, uh, Japanese? Yeah, it's a fascinating question because uh, uh, the the short answer is essentially the reason why internment wasn't carried out on Hawaii is because uh, the Japanese made up approximately a third of the population and it would have economically crippled the islands. And so for economic reasons, it was decided that the whole set of islands would be placed under martial law instead. And uh, actually, Hawaii was put under quite a lot of pressure to do mass internment, uh, but they they defended their position saying they didn't see it as a threat what they did do is they carried out a range of arrests of people who they thought could possibly um, help a foreign government so you find that there are uh, several Germans and Japanese who are interns and there are a couple of um, internment camps set up on the islands of Hawaii whereas in America we oh well on the mainland what we see is a much more concerted effort to sort of rid the west coast of the Japanese. So you, as I was saying that a lot of the men had been arrested and sent off to camps, there are a variety of different camps run by different organizations. And in the immediate aftermath of Pearl Harbor, it seems that they're almost satisfied to just intend some men. And then as the months continue and you sort of have more and more fear, built up about potential of a Japanese strike on the mainland. And there are, you know, rumours are rife. Uh, there are reports of, of incendiaries landing on the West Coast um, and people think they've seen submarines surfacing off the Pacific. And they, they start to say, well, actually, you know, maybe all the Japanese are living in key strategic places and they could really uh, cause us problems unless we round them all up en masse. Because you found, you see that there's a huge build-up of, of hate towards the Japanese who were often given the worst farming lands and then through their uh, work ethic and their practices, they turn it into the most um, productive land on the West Coast. And then this produces a backlash saying, well, you know, the Japanese have stolen all of our best land and that's why they're, they're making lots of money. So now we want that back again. And so in some ways you can see it as a huge 
land grab, essentially, because by removing the entire Japanese population from the West Coast, it's possible for people to take take their land and their possessions. And I, I mean, I, I think you've, yeah, I think you've already maybe hinted at a, a part of the answer to the question I'm going to ask. But I mean, do we think? I mean, is it the shock of Pearl Harbor? Is it the legacy of racism and the Yellow Peril that is why Japanese Americans are singled out for internment? I mean, I kind of think of a comparison. I mean, of German Americans during the First World War who did face some prejudice against them, but there was no, in any way, an attempt to to round up German Americans and, and, and intern them in a similar way. I mean, what, what do you think's at, at work here? Um, I would put that to Rachel and then to Tim. I, I think that, yes, I think that is a, is a large part of it because this has all been building up for some time and you find that the, actually the evidence that is used to support the policy of internment for reasons of national security was actually falsified. Um, and so it was made up for reasons because they believe that they still believe that with the yellow peril that the Japanese are inherently treacherous and Pearl Harbor sort of confirmed that American stereotype as far as they were concerned because they did believe that they had no warning and they also believed that there was no provocation. Though, of course, as we've discussed, you know, there were loads of events that were leading up to it that could have hinted at such an event happening. Yeah, I think there's there's a really interesting kind of historical background to the idea that it was necessary to um, intern uh, Japanese immigrants and Japanese Americans. And in the um, kind of Asian invasion literature that I mentioned earlier on, um, there's a really common trope of the Japanese as a sort of fifth column that um, when if there were to be a war between Japan and the United States, inevitably the Japanese living in the United States would rise up and kind of sabotage. Lots, there were lots of ideas that they'd been kind of undergoing military drills in preparation for this sort of thing. So a lot of these ideas I, you can see fed into this, this sort of sense of paranoia about how the Japanese would, would act. And yeah, I think the, the stereotypes of the Japanese as being treacherous, also as being um, sort of supernaturally loyal to the emperor that was quite a common um, stereotype that the Jap- japanese couldn't essentially become americans because they were so loyal to their homeland and so they would always remain japanese they would always remain this kind of foreign body within within the nation and i think that yeah that does have an influence on on how internment's understood and it's fascinating how persistent all this stuff about kind of racism and yellow peril because i mean 1941 this purely my interest you know boyhood interest in american science fiction there's a serialized story by the you know the major american science fiction writer robert heinlein called sixth column which is about this future war where pan-asian hordes as he refers to them invade the united states and take over and there's like i think six men left in a bunker who by the genius of american technological innovation uh, eventually defeat these pan-asian hordes and everything who succumb to all the traditional you know orientalist tropes and all that kind of thing and it was that book actually weirdly was i think it was re-released uh in in the late 1940s as well and was was a very popular it's a terrible book Really badly written. Interesting childhood reading habits you've got there, Malcolm. <laughs> it was part of the, it was part of a much much larger collection of uh, uh, Heinlein uh, and Asimov books and everything from the golden age of science fiction. A lot of which are extremely problem problematical in their relationship with like gender and sexuality and race and all of these things. These are yeah, these are deeply problematic books. But that's a, that's a, that's a side uh, side issue. I'd quite like quickly like to ask. Uh, uh, Rachel, I mean, in kind of preparation for some teaching I'm doing next semester, I've been looking at some of the Library of Congress collections of uh, Japanese internment camp newspapers and uh, photographs of the, of the camps, like uh, Ansel Adams, you know, the great American photographer. And it suggested that the phrase internment is misleading. And it was, was it Roger Daniels uh, who argued that mass incarceration is a more appropriate expression. I mean, what, what were the conditions like in camps for Japanese-Americans, places like Manzanar? Well, I think that um, it, it's right to say, I mean, internment is a recognised international, um, it's a recognised function of international war, uh, whereby you can intern enemy aliens. Uh, but, of course, that isn't what happens here at all, because whilst uh, those 
who uh, were first generation who'd come to the States and couldn't get citizenship were technically enemy aliens. Their children were American citizens. And so it is really a mass incarceration because you find that um, also when it comes to talking about the Japanese Americans, so you're talking about 120,000 people living on the West Coast. Um, and they said there's no possible time to put all of these individuals in front of a tribunal. Whereas on the East Coast, they found 10 months to put 600,000 Italians before tribunals to ascertain whether they're a threat to national security or not, which I think really underlines uh, sort of the racist notion of this policy. But in terms of the camps, there are a variety of different camps. So what you find is that um, when the orders for mass evacuation were sent out, uh, they were displayed in different neighbourhoods and um, some some neighbourhoods had only 24 hours to actually prepare for leaving. They could only take what they could carry. So you find that most people pretty much lost everything um, because it was set up really so that they could be plundered. And uh, they're sent to assembly centres, which are sort of, you know, um, temporary buildings on like racetracks and fair fairgrounds. And you find that the internees are housed in former stables. You know, so the conditions are incredibly basic. The the um, the toilets are often, you know, just sort of rough planks of wood with holes cut out and no partitions, you know, in the general wash houses. Um, and you could spend anything between a few weeks to a few months in these facilities while they built sort of what are known as the euphemistically termed relocation centres, which are in some of the, um, you know, sort of harshest climates in the US to live. You had a lot of them were on um, Indian land um, and other government-owned um, land as well. So they're in the middle of deserts. In the case of Arkansas, you had a couple in swamps. Um, and what they did was they constructed uh, barracks out of, you know, unseasoned wood and covered them in tar paper. And then they sort of partitioned them off into apartments. So, you know, whole families would be living, you know, in one room with very little space. And the only furniture they provided with was uh, sort of an iron cot for each member of the family and a heater. And um, they, of course, it also took quite a long time for those to be uh, put in. So you find that you have incredible heat in a lot of these places during the day and also incredible cold. And as I'm sure you can imagine, a tar paper barrack isn't really going to protect you from the elements particularly. No, and I mean, just a couple of final questions on, on this sort of topic in World War II. I mean, uh, firstly, am I right in thinking that there were some in the camps that managed to almost swear their loyalty to America and then were allowed to go off and fight on the side of the American army. And indeed, there was many of these these people who had been former internees went on to be highly decorated decorated soldiers. Uh, yeah. Uh, the uh, Although the um, basic constitutional right of freedom, um, you know, unless you, you, you are actually charged with a crime, uh, was still denied to them. They decided that it was unconstitutional to deny the um, Japanese-American males of fighting age the right to bear arms for their country and say so it's a selective enforcement of the constitution essentially and what they did was they put together an incredibly poorly worded loyalty questionnaire where they asked people to forswear allegiance to the emperor which harks back to the point tim was making about how they believed that everyone was linked to the emperor even if they'd never set foot in japan and um, so it's almost uh, the a lot of the um Japanese Americans felt that that was kind of a trick question because, you know, it was suggesting that they had actually had allegiance to the emperor in Japan before, even if they'd never been. Um, and they were also um, asked if they'd be willing to, to serve in the military. So you find that some um, of the, the Nisei, they did decide to resist the draft and, and say, actually, you can't make us serve in the military while you're still denying us our constitutional right to freedom. Um, and then you find that many others did serve in the military, but they were only allowed to serve in a segregated unit. So um, they did become, as you correctly said, the most decorated unit for its size in US military history. Mm-hmm. Right, I mean, so final question on, on World War II, um, just a sort of broad broad one. I think sort of, 
for a long time, Americans wanting to remember World War II as, as one book calls it the best war ever. You know, this idea that, you know, it was a war against Nazism and militarism and the Americans were the good guys and all that kind of thing. Um, sort of obscured what is, I feel like it's becoming more widely known again in popular culture, or at least in academic circles, maybe being talked about a bit more, is just the, the sheer brutality of the Pacific theater. Um, I, I don't know if either of you have any insights on this or not, but whether, you know, what goes on in the Pacific theater, you know, Americans coming back wearing the teeth and all that, and, you know, parts of, and like necklace. And if that, you think again, is linked to the idea already talked about on this podcast of, of the yellow peril. I think there are certainly ideas about how the Japanese wage war and, you know, which may or may not have had some, some basis in, in the kind of lived experiences of, of American soldiers, but there are certainly influences of the yellow peril and ideas of, of the Japanese, um, essentially being sort of so committed to, to violence and cruelty that they'll, they'll never stop fighting. And I suppose the ideas of unwillingness to surrender and this sort of thing, which, um, I think, yeah, has some influence on how people view the Pacific War um, and see it slightly differently from um, the European theatre. Um, I was interested um, maybe to hear to hear Malcolm's view, given his um, atomic expertise on the the kind of theory that 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 whole thing plays into um, the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That this different idea of the Japanese, different kind of stereotypes of the Japanese played into the, that kind of decision-making. Yeah, well, I mean, thank you very much for that question, Uh I mean, yeah, and the fact, the role that race plays in the Pacific War is obviously, I mean, you know, the reassessment really kind of with John Dower and Akira Irie in the 1980s and the 1990s, and everything. So not, not Akira Irie, uh, Ronald Takaki, uh, in the 80s and, and 90s, uh, definitely kind of like, you know, illustrated the importance of race in the Pacific War and racist ideals and, you know, you know, Pearl Harbor being a sneak attack, uh, in air quotes and everything just underlines kind of racist assumptions about the duplicity and sneakiness, I think, of the Oriental again in, in air quotes. And, and yeah, I mean, race does play a role in the in the atomic bombings, in the overall bombing campaign against ja- Japan, the, the firebombing campaign. I mean, we see parallels in Europe, but the attitudes, I think, in the Pacific water are slightly different. And certainly thereafter, race and the dropping of the bomb and ideas of racism really, really become intertwined. Uh, post-1945, there's a really great book by uh, Matthew Jones, called After Hiroshima, which is all about how race uh, involves itself in nuclear politics uh, of Asia post-1945. So it definitely definitely plays a role. But uh, yeah, we could could spend an entire year of podcasts talking about the atomic bombings and why they took place. So I'll shut up because I'll just end up rabbiting on about it. (laughs) I think think also just um, I think that the whole... the gruesomeness of the the Pacific War has very much framed sort of a lot of the debates that when people are talking about remembering internment, because there's still a lot of comments that that happen these days when you talk about the significance of internment in America, where they say, actually, you know, we didn't do nearly as, as badly as the Japanese did, you know, like, why do you want to remember it? You know, we, we didn't treat people as badly. So... If we can like wind towards the end of this podcast, and I think you know we'll be thinking about the legacies of, of World War Two, kind of attitudes towards you know what happened in the Pacific, and, and I mean, I mean, it's I mean interesting that the, you know the given that we're talking primarily about, about Japan and China, and it's sometimes forgotten by by us in the kind of the West with our kind of glorified view of World War Two that China, you know, has the second largest number of combat deaths. Out of any after the Soviet Union, after any of the combatants in, in World War Two, China suffered immensely uh, at, the, at the hands of the Japanese Empire. So, how have Japanese and Chinese Americans fared in American society post nineteen forty five? And these legacies of institutionalized racism and immigration restriction at the turn of the century, and also Japanese internment in World War Two, how have they been dealt with post nineteen forty five? Well, certainly in the immediate years after the war, um, there wasn't really nobody in America really wanted to hear about it. So you find a lot of, you know, sort of memories were repressed and suppressed and 
and actually the Japanese and Japanese American community were focused on rebuilding their lives. You know, they often had to relocate to completely different parts of the states and, and start off in completely different jobs that they had qualifications for. Um, and then you start to see sort of in the 60s, this idea of the model minority where the Japanese Americans are held up as this beacon of educational and economic achievement. Um, and then also sort of used to, uh, you know, denigrate other actual, uh, other racial minorities, uh, saying, well, you know, why can't you do, this is what they did. Why can't you do that as well? And then that moves then into the seventies and eighties where you have like a whole load of spurred on by civil rights. You have a whole load of campaigns to fight for actually an apology, uh, for internment. And in 1988, um, Ronald Reagan did finally offer an apology and, and acknowledge that the internment during the Second World War was wrong and it was completely racially motivated. And this was followed up two years later, um, by George Bush senior, um, offering a payment of $20,000 to the approximate 60,000 survivors of internment. And I find it interesting that how this is still, you know, relevant today. The, uh, the Star Trek actor George Takai spent his childhood, part of his childhood in an internment camp and he's, he's very vocal on social media about, you know, remembering the internment camps and, and all that kind of thing. He responded to, for example, there was a, a tweet kind of at the end of, uh, end of last year and at the end of November. Uh, last year being 2016, for those that are listening to this in 2018, where uh, uh, President Donald J. Trump, I still have difficulty saying that, uh, said, you know, nobody should be allowed to burn the American flag. If they do, there must be consequences, perhaps loss of citizenship or year in jail. And George Takai said, I pledged allegiance to the flag every morning inside an internment camp. I would never burn one, but I'd die to protect the right to do so. That's right. Um, George, uh, Take was, uh, he was interned in Tule Lake camp, which, uh, was sort of the most controversial of the camps because they ended up having a stockade there. And that was where all the disloyals were eventually, um, sent or those were considered disloyal. Uh, that was disloyal in inverted, uh, commas. Mm. And, um, and yeah. And so you find that now there's an awful lot of, um, social activism in the Japanese American community because they understand how easy it is to have your rights stripped away in America and for no one to stand up to that. And so you find that a lot of campaigns have been, um, you know, started up to say, stop repeating history. And it's really important. We understand the mistakes that were made in the past so that we don't replicate them in the future. And there were a lot of, an awful lot of them. Um, Japanese Americans have stood up against, you know, the Muslim travel ban and and policies like that that are happening in America because, you know, once you start down that road, it often ends in mass incarceration. Yes, yeah, to, to sort of follow on from that, I think the, um, the Muslim ban is a really interesting um, kind of point to focus on because as, as well as um, parallels that have been made with, with internment in terms of the, um, I guess, the singling out of a, a, a community... Um, based on these stereotypes, there's also, um, I think, a basis for the Muslim ban, for the sort of defences of the Muslim ban. Um, uh, and I suppose the, the recent Supreme Court decision, which um, has sort of okayed um, the majority of it. Um, in the cases that I mentioned earlier, which were designed to sort of um, solidify Chinese exclusion, to, to give this, this kind of... Um, legal basis to the exclusion of um of uh, potential immigrants on the basis purely of, of being um chinese and then and then later as we've said just um coming from this asiatic zone in general um and so i think yeah there's there's some interesting um continuities we can draw in the whole uh debate over immigration um particularly in terms of uh, the idea of sovereignty which is talked about a lot now um the idea that the the US needs to um, have borders, it needs to exert its sovereignty. It's something that's a, a common um, kind of factor in the in the Trump campaign. Um, I think Trump had the had the idea that you know either, either we have a country or we don't. That the US has to enforce its borders, and and part of that is excluding people that are considered kind of undesirable. Um, and we can see this whole debate going back into the early 20th century around, for example, the, the gentleman's agreement. There's a, um, 
a lot of criticism in Congress of the Gentlemen's Agreement because it um, puts sovereignty, takes US sovereignty and puts it in the hands of the Japanese, as the Japanese government are the ones who are not granting passports. They're the ones who are restricting the immigration rather than the US government doing it themselves. And you can really see echoes of this whole debate around um, sovereignty and also about, I suppose, the, the, the right of the nation to, to restrict immigration, to exclude people um, on whatever basis they see fit, um, really having relevance again today. And there's a, there's a definite kind of continuity through that. Well, I think that's a perfect place to, to end off. We've taken you all the way from the yellow peril to the orange peril. Um, it's been, it's been quite the podcast. Um, but, uh, thank you so much, Tim and Ra- Rachel. I really appreciated your insights throughout there. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, um, thank you for coming on. That was, uh, yeah, really, really fascinating and, uh, you know, interesting from the, you know, the point of view of kind of looking at America's kind of ongoing, uh, relationship with, with race and racism and, uh, being a nation of immigrants. Uh, I thought it was fascinating that you brought that discussion right up to date at the, at the very end there and showed that. And I think it illustrates the importance and relevance of historical study for where we are today. Indeed. Well said. Well, on that note, uh, we will be back with the regular podcast uh, towards the end of January when we're joined by uh, Nick Whittam to discuss 1968 and its legacies. Um, but also keep an eye for that special new podcast that will be out at the beginning of January. But until then, have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holiday and a Happy New Year. See you in 2018. See you in 2018. Bye. We all must beware of the yellow town. Chance of places if they are